This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know, once again from our live Israel podcast tour and from our business series and from our Women in Business sub-series therein. This week, another visit to the Mass Challenge Accelerator, where we already met and interviewed Miriam Schwab, the WordPress guru and Stratic founder. This week, we encounter another exceptionally brilliant woman named Yehudit Abrams, And Yehudit Abrams not only is a brilliant doctor, engineer, inventor, but also has one of the most interesting stories that you will ever hear. And I say that without hyperbole. She grew up in a Quaker home in Idaho and had the most fortuitous early experiences and connections that brought her to Judaism a really winding life path, both personally and professionally, that have brought her to where she is today, and that is as the founder of Monitor, an emerging diagnostic tool for detection of breast cancer that is poised to revolutionize the industry and save, without exaggeration, thousands of lives. Yehudi was the recipient of a entrepreneurship award from WeWork and as noted, is currently enrolled in the prestigious Mass Challenge Accelerator in the heart of Jerusalem. Like last week, we recorded in Mass Challenge, and again, those rooms are stone and cavernous, so my audio in particular, again, is quite echoey. Apologies once more, but thankfully, also once more, her audio is far better than mine, and so you will enjoy hearing her voice, and hearing her remarkably unique story. This week, our conversation from Jerusalem with Yehudit Abrams. We are here with Yehudit Abrams, founder of Monitor, a fabulous developing invention. And we are here once again at the home of Mass Challenge. Last time, for those following along, I was here interviewing Miriam Schwab, and at that time, I had no idea what Mass Challenge was. I now know all about it and look forward to hearing Yudit's particular experience in this Accelerator program. Yudit, welcome, and why don't you start by telling us a little bit about where you're from and your personal story? Yeah, uh, so I come from a family of ranchers and farmers in Boise, Idaho. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I uh, found my way to Israel through uh, my cello. Uh, So I was born and raised in Boise, Idaho, and I grew up uh, in a Quaker family. Uh, My mother was very religious. Very peaceful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know about that. Um, I thought that's a Quaker thing. (laughs) No, I guess we were. my, my parents grew up on farms, but I grew up in the city. We, we, had, we still had like sheep in the backyard, but um, uh, there wasn't a large Jewish community there. Um, in Boise. In Boise, yeah. Um, potatoes, they had a lot of potatoes though. <laughs> yeah. 
so my my mom was very religious. She raised me as a, as a very religious Christian, and prayer was, was something we did all day long. Uh, my mother is, is a very, very sweet and, and faithful person. And um, Was it a long line of Quakers? No, no, my mom was a rebel. Her mom was a religious Catholic. Huh. They, they came from Northern Ireland. They're like from the Black More Irish. More potatoes. The Black <laughs> Irish, right, right. Well, there's some thought that like some of the Black Irish in Northern Ireland actually came from the Spanish Inquisition. Huh. Um, and supposedly we carry some like Jewish genes or something. Right. You know, but do like, one of those ancestry.com. Uh, I did 23andMe. 23andMe. Yeah, and then I add my entire genome sequence just because I'm interested. Um, so uh, who knows, you know, if there was actually any Jewish blood or whatever you want to call it. Um, so your mother chose Quakerism as her own, on her own. Yeah, yeah. So she, she rebelled from her own religion as well. So she was kind of... That was like the hippie sort of religion at the time. It was very democratic. And anyway, so, but I grew up with a very deep sense of faith in me. And was your father in the picture? Was he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My dad was, um, I mean, he kind of tagged along. You know, he, he wasn't as into it as my Quaker father. light. Quaker light, right. <laughs> do, they have do they have cafeteria Quakers? I know that's a, if cafeteria Catholics. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but one thing she always said to me that really never made sense was don't don't ever question what is right. And mm. I sort of grew up questioning everything. And so I wasn't very satisfied with that answer and so I kept questioning. And Did so that get you into any kind of trouble? Oh, always. <laughs> um, and so when I was 10 years old, I, I started learning about other religions, and, and namely Taoism and, and, and Buddhism and Hinduism. And I, I became an avid transcendental meditator. And, uh, and you just went to the library and read books. I mean, this is pre this is pre yeah, Google. Yeah, yeah. I just go to the library, I'd get books, and I would read and, and get more questions and go find more books and, um, and more people. And um, my mom had some friends who were uh, avid meditators, and so I started hanging out with them and took this TM class and became a an avid transcendental meditator. At ten years old. Yeah, yeah. I was I was I mean I've only grown a half an inch since I was nine. So I mean I was I matured very precocious. Very. <laughs> And so, um, uh, time went on, and I, uh, when I was 13, my cello teacher gave me Kol Nidre, written by Max Brook, who was actually a non-Jew, who loved Jewish music. And, um, and it's the traditional Kol Nidre? It's very similar to the But original. arranged kind of in yeah. a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. written for cello. Kol Nidre, like exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's the original melody, which I guess they track back quite far. Yes. I don't know how. Very far. But they do. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I, you know, without knowing that I was born on Yom Kippur or, or any details about the piece, um, I, just holding music in my hand, I, I, I felt like the, the notes were popping off the page at me, like it was alive, there was something in the music that was different. I never played a piece like that. And you had been and playing cello since very young age? No, actually, you know, for some reason I just decided to switch out of nowhere. I was, I'd played violin for seven years and I was sitting in my classroom and the teacher was like, there's no cellist, we really need somebody on cello, would somebody like to play? And I never, I mean, violin was nice, but I just, I never got that far with it. Like something was holding me up. And so I just randomly raised my hand and I took a cello home with me that day and I brought it home with me and I just started playing and I, I fell asleep next to it that night. It was like my best friend. And after that, like it was me and cello and that, that, was, that was my thing. Awesome. <laughs> and so when I got this piece, when I sat down to play it, my, my teacher wasn't Jewish or anything, but she was a sure. wonderful woman. 
um, and oh, fantastic pianist. And so we sat down to play together, and and right away, I, I the first few measures, every hair in my body was standing up straight, and I felt something very very unique about the piece. I still remember the day, and so I I. Ask questions. I had to figure out where did this come from? Why am I feeling like this? What is the origin of this piece? And so I went to synagogue when I found out it was a Jewish piece in Boise, Idaho. It's the oldest synagogue uh, west of the Mississippi, built in 1865 to um, what I believe was Orthodox standards. It's a Sephardic synagogue. It has like an upper, uh, upper what do you call it? Balcony. Thank you. Um, <laughs> where the women sit and. Um, I walk in there, it was, uh, they, I found out they had a Friday night service, I walk in there and there's a gentleman getting ready for the services and I, uh, I said, hello, how are you? I'm very interested in this piece, what can you tell me about it, can you sing it? Because I want to hear what it sounds like, I want to like, have an authentic interpretation of the piece. And, and George uh, said no. Um, he said, Come back with Yom Kippur. Yeah, that's what he said, that's what he said. And so I... What time of the year was this? Um, I don't know. I think it was like four or five months before. Yeah, does it come back so, in five years? Five yeah, months. but I was curious. I was there anyway, so I stayed for the service, and right away I was just like, totally captivated by the Hebrew. This was a reform service at this yeah. point? Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, it's Idaho. It's nothing. It's just, we didn't even have a minion, so it was just community members. Probably half of them weren't even Jewish, you know what I mean? And, but George was, uh, but he wasn't. He was born to the wizard of the KKK in West Virginia. No, he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, through Catholicism and then Mormonism, when they asked him to actually go out and convert Jews, he started, he, he questioned, what am I doing? Who are these people and where'd they come from? And through that, he found Judaism himself. Unbelievable. He, he converted and he was a fantastic, fantastic creature. He's just really a wonderful person. He was my first teacher and he gave me books. And so I, I started reading and it wasn't just Judaism, it was also the community, it was always also the people I met. I shared their values, I shared their perspective. It was like, one of the things he said to me was, bring me your questions. Literally, that was his words, and I was like, I'm home. <laughs> if I'm someplace where I can ask and ask and ask and like encourage to ask more, and I can ask anything, and I'm home, you know? And so that was the beginning, and then I really started learning about, about Torah and the mitzvahs, and, um, and by the time I was uh, 15, I, I wondered if there were any Kohanim that lived in Boise, Idaho, because we didn't have a minion. And so I got out the phone book and, and uh, looked under Cohen, and, and sure enough, there's a one Cohen, and he lives right across the street from me, <laughs> literally right across the street from me. Wow. And I was so excited. It was a Thursday night, about 11 p.m., and I, I went outside, and I lay down on our steep driveway and looked up at the stars and dreamed that he would be maybe somebody would teach me more about Yiddishkeit, you know? And, and right at that moment, um, a 78-year-old man in his boxer shorts <laughs> opens up the garage door, light shines, I'm like, who is this person, you know? And he, he's in his boxer shorts, he slaps out the garbage can to the side of the road, and of course, I'm so excited. A 15-year-old girl, probably looked like I was 21. Um, and I, I run across the street and I say, are you a Cohen? And, and this, you know, 4'10", little stocky Russian Jew, Stiffens his neck and says, yes, I'm a Cohen. What else do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> and so we talked outside till about 2.30, 3 a.m. And after that, Ruben became kind of like a surrogate father to me because my parents were together. And my dad was um, very busy with work and doing great things, but I just didn't have the Kesher with him that I, I really wanted. Well, how was, I'm just so curious, how was your mother, who had this deep Quaker faith, how was she responding to this whole process from the time that you're dealing with, you know, meditation and? Yeah, I mean, it's just, my mom, 
you know, she let me be curious. It's not like she, she was also really busy working. You know, she was a single mom, and so she usually had two to three jobs. Yeah. And so I was on my own a lot, a lot. And so, you know, when you leave a kid alone, they're gonna explore things. <laughs> and and um, be careful, single moms don't work so hard because <laughs> your kid might become Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> right, or the other way, you know. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I was lucky. I found a nice path. Um, so. Reuben, he became like a surrogate father to me, and um, because I, my mom was always working, instead of going home, I would go straight to his house after school. Did he have a family? He did. Reuben, um, so <laughs> Reuben has his own story. His, his father escaped the Russian army and made his way on foot across Europe to Ellis Island. And uh, when Reuben was two, his mother died, and his father couldn't care for him by himself, and uh. so he put Reuben in an Orthodox orphanage in Boston. And that's where Ruben grew up until he ran away at 14 years old. And he went onto the streets of the Depression, became a meat cutter, had to change his name from Cohen to something else for the main, for a while. Right, because obviously he was Cohen. It's hard to get a job. Him. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he did that for 50 years. And he married and had three boys and cared for his wife uh, for 10 years when she had cancer. And she had passed. She'd been gone about 10 years when I met him. So he'd been alone. He'd been alone for a while. Um, so you must have given him something as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, it was a wonderful relationship. Uh, Ruben would, I would go to school every day to high school and he would, he'd, he wore the same tattered, torn up t-shirt and polyester pants every day and rode his bike to the library and would sit and read all day long, like history. And, and he'd just do math for fun, you know, and I would come, I would come home and we would just sit and he'd like, tell me history. Like when he would tell me history, it's like he was there. Like, like he really understood history and he had this encyclopedic mind. And um, I, I just soaked it up, and I had so many questions, and he had such great ways of answering them. So it was a perfect, perfect friendship. And so George and Reuben were these two. Yeah. It makes me, you know, interesting, just thinking George and Reuben, G and R, Gimel and Raish, it's Gare. <laughs> wow, you're quick. That's nice. <laughs> That's nice. So Reuben hadn't been to shul for 50 years. Oh. But he was an avid Jew. You know, the guy was a millionaire. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he invested every dime he had. He just didn't spend anything, and he lived off of his 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 profits from investments. And he donated all of his money to Jewish charities. Most of them were in Israel, orphanages, and Jewish schools. Good for him. Yeah. Was, really, After his death? No. During his, his life, life. His whole life. His really? whole life. Wow, unbelievable. He, he invested in, in real estate. Right. And did very well, and um and lived like a pauper, and just gave his money away. It was really a time. Unbelievable. Was right. Even though he he wasn't religious. Right. You know, he he did a lot for the Jewish. Well, he had a difficult life. Yeah. And he, to be he, able to discover those things on his own, and to have that sort of inner stirring to do those things is really special. But his Jewish identity was staunch. Yeah. And he um and he demonstrated that. So. He hadn't been to shul for 50 years, and so Reuben decided to start coming with me, and he became a regular at the shul, and everybody yeah. loved him in the community, and um, at that point, I knew I, I wanted to be a Jew. Yeah. I found my people. And this is when you were about, what, 17 years old at this point? No, no, like 15, 16. Wow, okay. And so Reuben knew that I, I was going to join the Jewish people, and I, I really wanted to do it where it counts. I wanted to experience Judaism for everything it was, and I felt like I needed to do that in Israel. And um, I think he, he knew that too. And so one night at synagogue when there was an advertisement to join a program called Sarel to 
um, volunteer for the, for the army. army. Yeah, or, sure. Because uh, I was interested in medicine, you could also volunteer at a hospital. And okay. so um, he saw the program and he, and he said, I'm going to buy you a ticket if you want to go to Israel. And I quickly said, well, I'm not going without you. Because <laughs> he'd never been he'd there. He'd never been. And I knew how much money he'd invested. And he would love to see his Oh, school. my goodness. He's got to go see what he's, what he's exactly. donated to. And right, right. So a week after my graduation from high school, um, I was 17 and he was 80. And we came to Eretz Yisrael together, and um, I had the intention of coming and staying as long as I needed to to do whatever was going to be in store for me <laughs> to convert and such. And he was going to stay with me for well, three, four weeks. Ended up staying for six, and uh, we worked in three different hospitals together, doing random things like gardening and washing dishes and. Um, and uh, we toured the country together uh, with one of our work managers who was Iraqi and took us into Jordan and slept on people's lawns and climbed the snake path at Mitsada and we did the whole the whole gamut. And again, this guy's 80 years old. At 80 years old. He climbed the, the snake what path. A, uh, it was amazing. What a soul. Truly. And then Ruben returned and I stayed. And um, I stayed with the program for three months, and after that, they were like, okay, you know, I'm sorry, but you got to go. <laughs> this is only really a one-week volunteer program, <laughs> two-week volunteer. <laughs> you can't stay for, you know, past three months. And so I was homeless. Um, and so I, but I'd been spending my, my, I'd come to, to Jerusalem for, for Shabbat, and I was staying at the Heritage House. And so during that time, I got to know Rabbi Asher Wade. He's, you know, I gave sure. tours at Yad Vashem. Yeah. And, uh, and he'd gotten to know me. And so during this time, I was also visiting all the women's seminaries in Yerushalayim and, and crying on rabbis' desks. You know, I didn't know about the three strikes rule that you got to ask three times before they're going to take you seriously. And so I asked once, and where I come from, when, you, when people say no, you, you walk away, you don't go. Polite Midwest society. I want a Midwest, really, but I mean, it's just different. We're just different that way. Um, and so, <laughs> so I didn't go back, and I thought I thought I was in for it. And I'd been to every school in, in Jerusalem, and, and Yom Kippur came around, and and I just I I had a, a turning point on, on that Yom Kippur. I was davening at the Kotel, and uh, to sh at the shul that overlooks the Kotel. I don't know what it was, but I, I still remember to this day. And I, there was there was just a, a a point inside of me where I, I just I let Hashem know that I didn't care anything else that He did with me in my life that. I, I had to be a Jew, and that was the most important thing to me, ever. And so, um, I I told Hashem at that point, you know, I'm I'm your servant. Like whatever you want of me, I will do. Just make me a Jew. And crazy as it is, the the next day I got in touch with. I was recommended to contact, or she called me. I don't remember exactly, but it was on a payphone, so I probably called her. It was in the old city. Uh, Total One got it at Shari Bina and Sfat. Uh -huh. And I guess Rabbi Asher Wade had gotten to know me. He put in a good word for me at this new school. And uh, Tova said, we want to have you. We want you to come to our school and we want to take you underneath our wing. And I, you know, I've been supporting myself, cleaning in people's homes and, you know, and, and so I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I didn't even really have money to go back to America, I don't think, at that time. Uh, and so she took me underneath her wing and I, I was there for a year. And uh, I went through the base in there under Avram Orbach and uh, completed my conversion in Svat. And then uh, I came back to Yerushalayim, decided to make Aliyah, and I, I did Opan, studied at Abay for six months. And kind of, you know, I, I, I thought that I didn't have a lot of women professionals around me at that time. Yeah. And, you know, I always wanted to be a physician, and I started thinking, like, 
okay, this isn't really consistent, like what I want to be. Because I was living in Mersharm with the Gormish Pacha, and, and it was... Um, Different I, culturally than, than what you were looking for. Yeah, and so I, I started to compromise myself at that point. I started to say like, okay, maybe I should just be a nurse, you know, and I'll, I'll be happy as a nurse. And I think when I did that, I lost my drive. I mm. lost my drive to get my Hebrew up to college level. I was the key to hey, I mean, it was okay, you know. And I think if I would have pushed more, I could have done it, you know. And they didn't have the programs that they have today where you can study medicine and English. And right. so I, um, I resolved to go back to the States. And so I um, and had some incredible experiences, like staying in Rebbe's houses for a week and getting paid 24-7 and cared for another Holocaust survivor in the last 10 days of her life when she had a brain tumor. And I, I got paid for all these services and I got enough money to get myself back to the States and uh, get, get an apartment. I uh, stayed with uh, Rabbi Lori Schneide, her name is now. She, she was a, a, a Talmud at, uh, at Shari Bina. Now she's now a, a Reconstructionist Rabbi in Venice, LA. Uh, where, did you, where in the states did you go back to? So I, I went back to, um, Not to I started in Woodmere. I was there for a month with Lori and her family. And then I got uh, my own apartment in Kew Garden Hills. Uh -huh. And my um, birthplace, by the way. Oh, great. Yeah. Nice. So Rabbi Portnoy. <laughs> I was there for four years. So Rabbi Portnoy there, he got me a job at the OU in the mill room. And so I, I started there and I was there for like half a year or something before I started at Stern. And then this I is, how old are you at this time? I guess I was 19. Okay. I was 19. And I um, started at Stern and it, it was, it was good. Um, you know, but I was a girl from Idaho and I just spent like a, a lot of time in spots and like that's doesn't really I'm jive with the uh, yeah. midtown Manhattan I did 34th not, Street. <laughs> exactly. I did not fit in at all. Um, and I didn't even really try to. Right. So maybe that made things worse. I don't know. But it was a whole different kind of Yiddish guy too. I just wasn't really ready for that. Yeah. And I got I got a little turned off. And and so when I lost my grandfather and my stepfather within a week of each other and I just wasn't happy. I just decided to just pack up and go home. And so I went home and my, my mom was in Corvallis at the time. She'd worked for HP for about 20 years. And uh, they had a summer seed program where you could, the, the, the children of, of HP employees could go there and work. And so I got this crazy job at HP um, as an intern. Uh, I was this, <laughs> I got to write this documentary film where my responsibility was to interview all of the major CEOs of HP. Incredible. Like, like in Dublin and Singapore. And all the regional managers. Yeah, heads, exactly. Yeah. They're not CEOs. I guess they were the, the regional managers. And these are extraordinary people. I'll bet. You know, and I spent my whole summer with, the, with these people interviewing them. And by the end of the summer, I was kind like, like... HP, you should know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. So this was, this was when Dave and Packard were still around. So I, it was a different, different kind of place. Um, this was pre-Carly. Uh, days and so I fell in love. I fell in love with this company. I fell in love with with the whole HP vision and the family that it really was at the time. And my it, my, it was in Corvallis, Oregon. And so I decided to check out the engineering department there because I was good at math. And so went there and um, I walked into the ME building. They didn't have a ladies' restroom. <laughs> wow. They had. Um, I found that at the top floor. Third floor, there was a, um, a janitor's closet that they'd put a toilet in. It was still a janitor's closet, so it had like all the supplies in there. But there was a toilet in there, and that was the ladies' restroom. And so, oh, sign of the times. I, I was like, okay, what is this place? This, this has got to change. And then I found out in the class, the freshman class, there was only going to be one girl. 
And so I, I thought, and I was kind of, my dad's a greaseball just for fun, like he'd build cars and stuff. And, and his, I've got like five uncles and they're all aeronautical engineers for Boeing and Alaska. And so we're all kind of, a lot of engineers in my family. And so we're very mechanical and good at math. And, and so I think it was just kind of second nature, you know, when I, 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 I liked, I, I, I thought I would like mechanical engineering. And I, a little bit of the work that I did at HP was also kind of inspirational in that area. So I, um, I, when I found out there weren't really that many women in the department, I, that was very interesting to me. So I, I became a mechanical engineer and I joined the program there and I was there for the next five years. <laughs> and now, you didn't have a college degree at this point, right? No, 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 this was undergrad. Yeah, and then. Um, but I'm saying you were working during undergrad. Yeah, also like I, I took. But you went I to school some, while you were working at HP. I was always working. Like I always had some sort of job that. I, no, not I was. That was that, that was summer work. Okay. At, at HP, and so, and then I spent my the school years like, doing whatever you know. In Corvallis. Yeah, in Corvallis, Oregon. That's Oregon State. Yeah. And there I was. I think uh, is that Craig Robinson, who's the uh, basketball coach there now. Sorry. I think that's. I think, well, the reason I say that is I, think I know they were really. I think it's Barack really Obama's brother-in-law. Oh, is it? I think so. Oh, I didn't know why. I think so. How do you know this? I don't. Um, I'm weird. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and then after that, I I worked at Intel. Uh, for for a year in Novella Systems, and I I started realizing, you know, I got to go to medical school. And I, um, I was looking at how much debt I had for my undergrad, and I was like, you know what, I don't want any more of this. I don't need this. And I, I was not excited when I started looking at tuition for medical school in the States, that it was, you know, I was looking at 50000 a year just for tuition. <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, I'm not going to do this. I, I looked into other options, and I was getting kind of itchy. Like, I wanted to go abroad. I needed, getting kind of tired of, of the States and all the politics that was going on there. We were in Afghanistan, and I was kind of sick about that. I was working with some Afghan refugees, and I just, I, I needed a change. And well, what was so, going on Jewishly at this time with you? Because Corvallis yeah. is not exactly, you know, well, Sharm. No, but I, you know, I do well in that, in that position. You know, I, I was, I was president of the Jewish Student Union, and I, I ran Hillel, and I organized birthright trips, and so I was, I was very active Jewishly. So I, I started looking for different options, and I found uh, a school in Europe that was $9,000 a year, and so I contacted physicians who had studied there and, and were practicing medicine in the States, and they said nothing but good things. Legit. Yeah. And so I was like, wow, this is really cool. So I, I took their entrance exam, which happened to be mostly physics for some reason. <laughs> so it, it was very easy for me, and, and uh, I was accepted, and I went. And just Where was it exactly? Um, right in the middle of Prague, wow. in the Czech Republic. Right. Uh, first Faculty of Medicine, um, built in like 1348. It was gorgeous and very interesting. And it was a six-year program. And so I was there that whole six years. And it was Western in terms of its yeah, orientation? Yeah, it, it was an international program. And so it was, it was like 90% in English, you know. And had a fantastic experience. And it also allowed me to use my summers to, to join different medical teams around the world on different missions. And so I did that every summer. I went to a different country. And doctors without places. borders? or No, I mean, I wasn't a board certified physician. They don't take you unless you're board certified. Believe me, I tried. Um, <laughs> I, I joined all other different kinds of teams who were willing to have a completely ignorant medical student on board, you know? And so. Uh, did some work in the Czech Republic, joined Physicians for Human Rights in Israel in the West Bank, and, and went to Guyana with Guyana Watch. Uh, I joined East Tennessee State Medical School in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. 
I was a Wrangler one summer in Idaho. Back to your roots. Yeah, I, I actually did that. I, I, you know, I felt like embarrassed because I was in the Czech Republic and I was like getting into playing banjo and there, and people were really excited that I was from Idaho and like I came from a family of cowboys and but like I rejected all that and I was like, I, that's not me. That's you don't want to know about that. But they did and they were fascinated and I was like, maybe I should know how to like really properly ride, you know, because everybody else in my family knew and I didn't. So one summer I decided, you know, I'm just gonna gonna do it. <laughs> I contacted this guy, rode him for six months this uh, outfit in in Stanley, Idaho, which is like one of my, my most favorite places in the world. It's gorgeous. Uh, rode him for six months begging him to let me be a Wrangler for the summer, convincing him that I would be the best ever. <laughs> and he let me come. He let me come. So I got a job one summer as, as a Wrangler. Unbelievable. And um, did pack trips and you know, I had to saddle like 12 horses by like five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Goodness. Unbelievable. So you became a doctor in six years. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had all those crazy experiences. And by the time my senior year, d during the summer, I, I was getting really frustrated with, with joining these medical teams, not really leaving anything behind. Because everywhere we went, there was such a lack of diagnostics, the labs or, or, or imaging. So I started thinking, like, what can I do to help these people, you know, as an engineer, as a, as a physician? And so I started thinking about combining the skill set for developing point-of-care technology and getting into the, that space. And so that was my first interest in medical devices. And um, so in my senior year, there was this crazy program called Singularity University on the NASA campus, and it was a new thing that they just started. And I just I saw it online, I applied on a whim, didn't really think anything of it, took like five minutes to write up a pithy little paragraph and left it. And, and they called me back for a second interview and I ended up getting a $25,000 Google scholarship that summer to join this, this program on the NASA campus. So I graduated early and got on a plane. They dumped me from the middle of Prague into Moffett Field at, at the NASA Ames campus. And I felt like a complete alien, <laughs> let me tell you. It was really something to go from the middle of gorgeous Prague, you know, to be thrown into this airfield. Um, and so I, I went there, had an extraordinary program, um, and I, I, the, the most important takeaway that I got from that summer was that, you know, by sitting down with people like Larry Page and Elon Musk, Vint Cerf, astronauts, Nobel laureates, just sitting one-on-one -on -one sometimes with these folks and just getting to see how normal they are huh. and how I'm really not that different than them and how they truly believed in me. And that, like, gave me so much push just to realize that, you know, it's, it's a matter of your mindset and anyone can be great. Really, anyone can be great. You just, you have to, you have to look deep for your inspiration to see where it's coming from and listen and not be afraid. And um, that was incredibly empowering for me. And from then on, I, I didn't stop thinking big after that. I wasn't afraid to think big. And I also felt like, you know, even though I wasn't always as religious as I am now, I was always observant in, in, my, in my own way, and, but Hashem was always central in my life. I was always davening the way I was raised. Like, I always had this undercurrent of... of and prayer was valuable, yeah. Extremely. It was always, Hashem, show me what it is that you want me to do. I'm here. Just right. guide me. And I will, I will follow and I will do. And so, after that, I, uh, through, because I was at the NASA campus, I got to know the, the chief medical officer there at NASA, who is uh, Dr. Ralph Pellegra. He was a great friend, and he 
would take me flying while he had to like keep his, his license up and so he taught me like how to fly a little bit and and so with that I got a, an, an interview with Pete Warden who was who was the head of NASA Ames and and uh, with that he, he threw me into what they call the sandbox which is a place where you know, a bunch, they throw a bunch of young engineers working on cool and new innovative products. Their own ideas or? Um, well yeah I mean they would be given a problem and they have to engineer a solution and so the problem that I was given was looking at devices that could, medical devices that could support long duration space missions. And so NASA has this like ridiculous list of requirements. They wanted a device that not only could image reliably any part of the body, but also treat, <laughs> diagnose and treat. Oh my goodness, like a robot to like do surgery on you? <laughs> Possibly. You know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking what on earth? could I possibly, could fit all of those requirements? Yeah. And so it gets very limited at that point. And I, I had just gotten back, before I'd started the, the postdoc, I'd just gotten back from Haiti. There was the earthquake there. And I'd asked yeah. my advisor, I said, let me go. Let me go to Haiti and, and, and I'll come back and then I'll start. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. So and did you ever end up doing a residency? Or? I did. I, I started, but that's, that's later. That's, okay. after, that's after NASA. So um, he, said, he said, yeah, go. He said, but when you go, think of Mars. And when I was in Haiti, I, I, I understood what he meant. Like, you, you do, you gotta think about, when you're there, you see the disparity. There was like nothing there. And I was like, what can I give these people? What is it that, what would make the biggest impact on them? And so I, I thought about labs a lot and some of these point of care devices, but that was already so advanced. Like, I was looking for something that was new. And so I started thinking about ultrasound because ultrasound does have, there's these things called CMUT which are capacitant micro-machined ultrasonic transducers. It's a silicon-based transducer instead of the traditional piezoelectric crystals that have to be grown very specifically. And these things can be produced, mass-produced on wafers, so it can drive the cost way down. And so I got to know the, the, the inventor of this, uh, Dr. Curry Yacoub at, at Stanford, and, and played around in his lab a little bit and, and got to familiar with the technology. And, and uh, that patent is up this year. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so Let me that, jump in on that. <laughs> that has to, exactly, that has something to do with what I'm doing. And so I, I developed this idea. It was, it, was a, it was a year about learning really how to write a protocol and how to apply for grants and doing all these things that you learn as a PhD. Because I didn't have the PhD, so I was given these basic skills, research skills, you know. And uh, so I was there for two years. Um, and uh, after that, I, I thought, you know, I, I need to do my residency, and, and, and you know, I met my husband during that time, and, and decided to have a baby, <laughs> like the worst possible time ever. And so when David was five weeks old, I started my residency. Oh my gosh. And um, I was literally pumping while I was seeing patients. And I realized this is such a special time. And I also realized, like, it was one day I was walking around the hospital, and I just stood there. And I didn't trust my attendings. I didn't like who I was trying to learn from. And I had seen things that I, I did not, I, I saw the way that they were treating patients. Um, I didn't agree with it, it wasn't my way. I didn't really want to learn from them. And I, I sat there and I thought, you know, I just stood there in my, my steps and it was one of, one of those moments in your life when like, there's a really hard truth and you have to accept it. And I, I knew I was not doing what I needed to do. I knew being exposed to all this incredible technology that through Singularity University and being at NASA, and here I was, you know, 
in a family medicine program, which was my original intent because I wanted to practice international medicine and I thought that would prepare me the best. Um, I, uh, I realized I had bigger things to do. I, I, I realized that I, technology could save thousands of lives at a time and not just one. And I felt like that was my role. And so I swallowed and I resigned. In the middle of your residency? Yes. And I left and I went home. I also wanted to be with my son. It was a, it was a really important time. And my son was, was just a baby, you know. And, and, and they also gave me an ultimatum about, about not breastfeeding, and so, which was against the law, actually. But I wasn't strong enough at the time to try to have a lawsuit against that. I just, there were too many things going on. And so I, I, I withdrew from the program and I went home and I focused 100% on my son and, and loved the time. And you know, it was really a critical time in my life. And I, I, want, I also want religious women to think about this, that when they're home with their children, it's a very busy time, don't get me wrong, but it's also a very creative time. And I think having that space, having that time to digest all of this information that, and, and ideas that I'd had, while I was at NASA, you know, I lost my cousin. She was a breast cancer survivor, and, and she was a gynecologist, and she was really passionate about early detection of breast cancer. And, and I was working in ultrasound, and during that time, I'd, I'd started working on this app to assist with the breast self-exam, and that would track, help a woman track her results in, in an app of, if she found a mass, where was it, what did it feel like, go through the standard questions, and help her to help objectify what is very subjective exam. And so I... Um, I was home, and so I, I, I started diving really deep into that and started thinking more about ultrasound and using ultrasound for monitoring. And um, I was looking for a, a group of engineers who could help me develop my idea and the app, and I found this group of 70-year-old men who tried to start this ultrasound company who knew nothing about ultrasound or women's health. And um, I... I volunteered for them because I, I wanted them to develop my app and I wanted to use their engineers and, and I got to know their chief medical officer really well and, and so um, I worked for them for like six months in, in creating my own ideas and then they, they invited me to be their principal investigator to run their clinical studies at, at UCLA and, and, and the Netherlands. So I ended up doing that for the next four and a half years. And during that time I met extraordinary scientists and made very critical connections of these individuals who now make up my scientific board. And when we decided to move to Israel, um, I thought it would be the perfect time to break off from them and do my own thing. And so uh, there were some transitions in my life, uh, family-wise. Yeah. Uh, things were working out, and, and it was very clear that we need to make a change. And so... Um, what year was this, or how long ago? So that was... We moved back on, t I had a houseboat when I was at NASA. I, I, I bought a boat. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and because I didn't want to pay $3,000 a month for rent. And so I found uh, a really nice houseboat and gutted it and redid it all myself. And, oh my goodness. And while I was at NASA. And so I lived on this houseboat uh, 10 miles north in Redwood City at, at Pete's Harbor and, in the South Bay. And so uh, when things didn't work out, we all moved on the boat. Uh, David and I, and my mom moved in to help out. And so we really lived on the boat. We moved the boat down to San Diego because uh, I wanted to be closer to uh, Dr. Michael Andre, who is, is, is on my board from UCSD. And uh, so we were there in San Diego for a year and um, becoming more and more observant and really, really thinking about moving to Israel. And so 
uh, when we decided to do that, I thought it was the perfect time to start up the company. And so I wanted to do an artist's role. And I had planned on coming back here and actually finishing my, my residency and, and finally doing radiology because I'd been working in it for the last six years or so. And so I um, originally, you know, I dreamed of, of being in Eritz's role as a physician. I love Sharitzetic, which was part of the reason why I thought maybe I should be a nurse, you know, because that's what all the from women did. So I dreamed of, of working at Sharitzetic, and so I came back to Eritz's role dreaming that maybe I would be able to actually be a physician at Sharitzetic. So I applied to the residency lottery, and you could get placed in any hospital in Israel. You give your, your first choice, obviously, and Shari said it was mine. I ended up getting it. Cool. And so I was very, very excited about that. And, uh, and then, you know, in the meantime, I had these ideas. I filed patents as soon as I got in, in Israel for this device that I'd been chewing on for years. And um, I applied to Mass Challenge and got accepted, and, and that really started moving things along. It made it really seem like a, a reality. And this concept was what, having an, an ultrasound device that would be, allow for detection? For monitoring. Um, I was envisioning a whole breast ultrasound device. The company that I'd worked for before had this idea of creating a device that would just differentiate between solid and cystic masses for palpable masses only. I was really interested in, in scanning the entire breast and getting that data set, particularly looking at that, that data set from month to month to month in thousands of women and the potential in that data set, what, that, what we can actually do with that. And so that was really my vision, and that's, that's what I filed the patent on. And Mass Challenge really was, was very helpful in, in pushing me along. And it's an accelerator, and that's exactly what it did. It gave me the connections that I needed to. Did you form a team out of this? Uh, yeah, I started. I, I, I uh, tried out a few different co-founders, um, and it takes time to find the right people. You know, these are people that you, you're going to be very close with for many years. Yeah. And so I, um, I'm in the process of signing someone on right now that I, cool. can't, I can't disclose. Okay. But she's uh, extraordinary. It was the former CEO of another very successful medical device company. Um, and she'll be my business lead. Right. Do you feel like you have personally have business acumen or you're more, really more on the technology side? No, I, maybe, I mean a little bit, I guess. You know, I, I can read people well, but no, no. I, I, that's not my forte. Right, which is why you wanted to bring on a business, exactly. business oriented Somebody person. Somebody who yeah. really, really knows how to, how to fundraise, how to, how to talk with investors, right. how to write a, a strong business plan. So yeah, and just one day out of nowhere, I just decided to apply for this WeWork Award thing. I just saw this advertisement and I took 10 minutes and you know, just like the singularity thing, I just did a quick little application, forgot about it, didn't really think much of it. And I get a phone call, like, oh, wow, you've been selected as a semifinalist. And I was like, okay, <laughs> what do I do now? You know, and I went and I, I gave my pitch, and I got to be a finalist. And what was this exactly? Was, it, was there a WeWork issues awards for the best startups? Like, what's there? Yeah, it, it's actually an investment for the okay. startups, for the nonprofits. It is an award, I believe. Um, but for us, it, it was an investment. And uh, I just went and I made a five-minute pitch to some judges, answered their questions. And now, where was this? Because WeWork's not in Israel yet, right? Oh, they are. Oh, they are in Israel. Yeah, they've got several offices. And okay. I, I think they might even open one in Jerusalem. Um, Maybe that's what it was, that Jerusalem doesn't have it yet. Yeah. It's coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, Adam Newman, obviously, is a Jewish guy who's... Shomer uh, Shabbos. Shabbos, yeah. Are you, have, did you get to know him through this? or? Oh, I haven't got to know him yet. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I've gotten to know many extraordinary people from his team. And they're, they're, they're a great group, and I'm really excited to be a partner. So what did the prize entail? In other words, 
they gave you a grant or a, uh, a seed funding or it, yeah. angel investment? What was the? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a safe agreement. It's uh, it's a pretty good deal. It's it's seed funding. It's 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 one point two million shekel, three hundred sixty thousand dollars. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a good start. Uh, so um, I got the award, and um, and then I just got back from New York City. I was competing for the Global uh, WeWork Creator Award, and uh, we'll see how that goes. I won't find out till December if I'm. Selected. Oh, they haven't announced that yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, if I am selected, I'll go and actually get to present at Madison Square Garden, which is like super cool. That is very very cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's so. really neat. So you came up with a name for this uh, device? Oh, we went through so many names. Because I think it's so, so catchy. Names. I think it's brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I started off with Breast Friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, which Seems a little too risque for the, for the public marketplace. I don't know. Yeah, all the guys say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then it, we became B-Rest. Okay. So take out the A. I see. I got you. B-Rest. Like to be at rest with your breast. Right. You know? Um, and I went through, oh, before that, I was so many other things. I was security, I was um, Ubersonics. <laughs> and, and then it came to me, like, what is it that I'm doing? What is it that makes us unique? What is our true power? And the real innovation here is that we're using a clinical grade diagnostic in a way that's never been used before. And that is through monitoring. Yeah. And so, um, Oh, another name was Empower Her, like at the end, which is actually I found out another organization, so I didn't really want to use that, but the her at the end. Yeah. And I started like thinking of all these words that had ER at the end that yeah. I could change, and monitor came up, and it was perfect. Beautiful. That's, that's <laughs> great. It's just great. I really thought it was, I appreciate wordplay, and so it was, it's, uh, I think it's just fabulous um, and very catchy. Yeah, thank you. Um, so where, where is the company right now, and, uh, and kind of what's the sort of the, the path from here? You have this fabulous investment from a really, you know, super established company, and mm -hmm. what do you do from here? Right. Um, so one of my previous collaborators at UCSD, uh, Dr. Michael Andre, he worked for 20 years with a gentleman by the name of Michael Galperin who was a Russian Jew who immigrated to uh, the United States and had a dream with Michael Andre of creating this software that would improve detection capability. So Dr. Michael Andre and Michael Gelbhorn worked on this CAD system for over 20 years. They had multiple clinical studies across the United States. It's a computer-aided diagnostic system. The reference library is extraordinary. It has thousands of breast images. Um, they're very demonstrative of pathology in the population, very well characterized images, um, and the CAD was proven to outperform radiologists by 15% in differentiating between benign and malignant tumors, huh. which is not normally a function of ultrasound. But what's key here is, is it was based upon one image, okay, in, in the clinical study. So what we're doing is, is way beyond that. So we do a baseline scan, and 500 images are, are obtained from the breast, okay, each time she uses it. A 50 per scan because the the device covers one quarter of the breast you perform it four times on each breast and then once per axilla and each time you get 50 images so a total of 500 images are obtained each one of those images are referenced back to the reference library and when the reference library detects something of a similarity to a pathology within the reference library it, that particular area is marked and that becomes a region of interest if you will and that region of interest along with the rest of the breast parenchyma that is scanned every single month we watch changes in that area, okay? We, there's nine different clinically accepted parameters that we measure from month to month. 
We get the delta on those. We compare it to the baseline. We, ba we compare months to look at potential growth rates. And when we start to see a change in the breast, we notify the user. And the user, with a click of a button through the app, can send a secure link to their physician, who will then have immediate access to high-resolution images from every single month that the, the user used the device. And so the idea is that we're conquering four major problems of mammography. Um, the first and most important, certainly, is that we're just not catching it soon enough. So, and the, the recovery rate for early detection is extraordinarily high, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, the, I mean, five-year survival rate goes from literally almost 100% to as low as 23, some say 16% when the cancer leaves the breast. And so it's, early detection is absolutely key. No one will disagree with me on that. And so by having a delta in these, these parameters every single month, as soon as we see something, it can be questioned. And so she can send this link to her physician. The physician has the information. At that point, the physician can make a decision. Do, is this, do I want a bi biopsy? Is this something that, or do we want to wait a few more months and see what happens? It's up to the physician still. We are not diagnosing. We are monitoring breast health. We're not trying to diagnose breast cancer. It's a very different approach. Preventative imaging, if you will, what I like to call it. I think it's, I think it's the future of medical imaging, frankly. Um, and so, and then they, they, she also has an option. She, if she doesn't want to contact her physician, she can use one of our staff radiologists who can do an immediate assessment. And so 260,000 cases of invasive breast cancer are being found every year in the United States, only 60,000 cases of stage zero cancer. Okay, and our goal is to reverse those numbers. Now, in that, there's always a risk for false positives. Sure. Okay, and um, probably will increase the biopsy rate, unnecessary biopsy rate, but I also think that because we are scanning every single month, if, if a woman does have known DCIS, ductal carcinoma in situ, um, let me back up just a little bit. Okay, so 20% of all breast cancers are of the DCIS type, ductal carcinoma in situ type, okay? So 30% of this type of cancer will become an invasive cancer. 70% of them will not, okay? And so that what that translates to is that we're spending over $4 billion a year treating 50,000 women for cancers they don't have. And when I say treat, I don't mean just surgery. I mean, we're irradiating these women. Right, chemo, radiation. Not chemo, not, radiation. not for DCIS, yeah. But, but typ typical protocol does. And that has its also health issues and side effects. and Horrible, Yeah. horrible. And, it, 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 and these cancers can remain indolent, potentially for a woman's lifetime, or, or even dissolve, go away. And so it's, it's really a shame that we're over-diagnosing. I, I think by far, because looking at the detection rates for stage zero versus invasive cancers, the, the 260 versus 60. It's time to reverse those numbers. And mammography is just not catching breast cancer soon enough. And yeah. there probably will be potentially more unnecessary biopsies, perhaps not. Um, you know, if a woman is using our device and she goes for her annual mammogram, and I, I do want to stress we are a partner. <laughs> We're not trying to replace now. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Mammography. Um, but we are, we are certainly a partner. And if a woman goes for her mammogram and she's been using our device all year long and the doctor sees a mass, he can say, okay, we're going to do a biopsy. And she can say, well, maybe we should take a look at these images first. And she can show him that, oh, you know, I've had this mass actually for the last six months and it hasn't really done anything. It's been the exact same size and there hasn't been any change in these parameters. Do we want to wait? potentially and see what this is going to do or do we want to go ahead and biopsy right now 
Um, and you know, if, if, the, if the mass hasn't been characterized, then they will biopsy, but they won't necessarily treat. Okay, and this can avoid a lot of unnecessary surgeries. So that's one of the other problems we're trying to con conquer. And of course, breast density um, is a really big problem with mammography. It is a mammographic problem. It's not a problem of ultrasound or MRI. Breast density is defined by mammography. About 40 to 50% of the women over the age 40 have dense breasts. Okay, and so when a woman has dense breasts, you can't really see through it on a mammogram. So a woman can't rely on mammography. So it's just not as diagnostically accurate? Yeah, accurate and, and effective. And so she ends up getting an ultrasound afterward. So um, we don't perform mammograms generally on women under the age of 40 because they have dense breasts and it's just an ineffective screening method. Um, <clears throat> as well, the incidence of breast cancer is significantly lower for women under 40. But it still is the number two cancer. And mm. under, under 40 years old. And there's a lot of high-risk women out there who don't even know they're high-risk until it's too late yeah. to find out. And so I'm not suggesting that you know, every woman be screened for breast cancer, but if there's a hunch or there's a, there's a thought that, that, that there could be a risk for a woman, I, I, I think it's great if she can have earlier detection. Sure. Um, and if, if, if we could create a device that is, that is not cost-prohibitive for the consumer, to have in the home, um, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. Why not? Seems um, like a no-brainer. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely a brainer. <laughs> There's a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, and it, it's definitely risky, but it's too big of a problem. Um, so if you look at breast density for the entire population of women from the age of 20 to 79, you're actually looking at 75% of women who have dense breasts. So mammography is not effective for that, that many women, potentially. Um, and, and then the other problem I, I alluded to was the high-risk women. So these high-risk women who know that they're high-risk are getting an MRI every six months if they're doing the right thing and they happen to be in the right position like most women are not. So in that six months, these women are absolutely terrified to have that six-month MRI. And so um, at least in the United States alone, 20,000 of these women are removing their breasts without any pathology in their breasts, just out of fear. And I think if... if it's certainly clinically mandated, I think, for some of those women, like who are BRCA1 positive, to, to pro a mastectomy is an appropriate uh, management, I think, um, because the risk is just so high. Um, but there's other women, like myself, I'm, I'm not BRCA positive, but I am high risk because of other genetic markers and family history, that I don't really want to go and do that. But if I had another option, sure, I, I probably wouldn't, you know. Um, so. It provides women a lot of reassurance that they're being monitored, that, that something, there's information on their breast every month, and if there is a change, that their doctor can be involved right away before the cancer can, can manifest. Right. Most aggressive cancers tend to be interval cancers. They tend to occur between mammograms. And so those are the cancers that are harder to catch, but the ones that have been hanging around a long time, like DCIS, they show up pretty frequently on mammograms. And that's where that big false positive and overtreatment's coming from. But we right. just can't track what these, what these masses are doing because our, our imaging is too infrequent. Um, and so those are the four problems that we're, we're trying to solve. Breast density, the problem of overdiagnosis and treatment of ductal carcinoma in situ, the underdiagnosis of advanced breast cancer, and the problem with high-risk women and, and providing them the reassurance and, and monitoring that they really need. Have you built a prototype already? No. Um, so I, I started talking a little bit about the software. Right. And, and so I just want to say that my, it's 
it's really interesting that I, I didn't know anything about Michael Gelper and Dr. Andre's partner until I started talking to Dr. Andre more seriously about using the software and getting, I got in touch with the family and found out he was a religious Jew who, who built a Chabad center and, and shul in his community in La Costa, California. Wow. And he actually, um, so he, Michael got a, a terminal diagnosis two months after he got his FDA approval on the oh. software. And uh, no one ended up purchasing the software or using it. And so this beautiful product that millions of dollars was poured into never got used. And it was his dream to make an impact in early detection of breast cancer. And he actually wanted to, at the end of his life, come to Eretz Yisrael. And uh, so I feel like in some ways I'm, I'm carrying on his dream as well. I didn't know any of this before I got involved. Unbelievable. And when I met the family and talked to them on the phone for the first time, and we spoke for two hours and we were both in tears by the end of the evening, you know, just realizing there was so much overlap with my dream and his dream. And so I'm really honored to work with the family and to have them as a partner. And so this is an extraordinary software, and it gives us, uh, we're designing our, our prototype around this software. And so right now I'm actually hoping to use the WeWork money to file a series of parent and children patents around the device for our provisional expires. We're doing the non-provisional. And we're seeking out OEMs right now, and we're writing up the final specs. Um, so that, that's really where we're at. We are designing a prototype around the software. And then are you going to hire engineers to actually construct it, or yeah. will you be involved in the actual? Oh, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm hoping to choose OEMs that are close enough that I can be there on a regular basis and, and, and watch, the, watch the process and to be directly involved to make sure that they're considering the end user at every step. Um, and are there places in Israel that, you, that are qualified to do what you're looking for? Oh, for sure. Yeah. This is Israel. <laughs> <laughs> So you would go to you would you would contract like an existing manufacturing mm -hmm. plant or something like that and yeah yeah utilize their resources there. Yeah, they there's there's several here that they they do everything they will they'll they'll do the the shell they'll do the inner mechanics they'll connect me with manufacturers in China um, they'll help coordinate that's um, for mass production at uh, that point yeah, yeah yeah the they they'll help coordinate specialized parts that I have other people creating and labs working with and. Um, so it's, it's great, it's a great Have you specced out the, the end user cost, your ideal end user cost? Or? I'll tell you what the vision is. Yeah. I, can't, I can't speak to the actual cost. Um, but the dream is, is that because we are creating a data set that has never been created before, um, even with one one hundredth of women who are currently living with or have had breast cancer in the United States as early adopters, uh, within the first six months we'll have over 100 million images of the breast. And this is obtained from month to month. And so this is a data set that we've never seen before. Yes. And uh, because those women are so high risk for breast cancer, undoubtedly there will be cases. And so we'll have imaging of the development of cancer. And it's such a rich data set because of the way that we're obtaining the data. My dream is that that data will be so valuable that it can offset the cost of this clinical device to make it not cost prohibitive for the, con for the consumer. Right. My goal is to make this as affordable as possible so that the maximum number of women can have this. That being said... Uh, who would buy the data set? I mean, who would invest in that? Who, who has an interest? Uh, you know, I, I don't know that much about this stuff. I, I, it's not really my area. Right. Um, I've been told. <laughs> I've been told by, by big people who know Research companies, about. pharmaceutical companies, like who? Et cetera. Right. Et cetera. Uh, so that's the dream. Um, we'll probably start with high-risk women. Um, that may entail a prescriptive device, I'm not mm. sure. 
Um, I don't want to be prohibitive. Would that require FDA approval at that point? Oh, of course. Yeah. No. Um, we'll probably start in Europe. I, I don't know that we'll start in the States. The threshold is, is just lower entry barrier. Yeah, entry. I mean, to get a CE mark, it's not, um, particularly for the type of device that we're creating, I don't think it'll be that difficult. Um, one of our advisors is former chair of, of radiological devices at the FDA, uh, an ultrasound scientist. So he's, you know, he's he's very helpful with guiding our, our process and making sure that we work very closely with the FDA at every process of application. So I'm not saying that we won't go directly to the states. It, it kind of just depends on um, pre-market studies um, right. and how big they need to be and and how much money we have to to pay for these studies. Sure. Um, so it's. It's it's very it's an intricate process and it's it's highly dependent upon our funding. Right. What's the timeline on something like this, like to get, you know, um, something like developed? I'll, I'll tell you how long it normally takes. Yeah. You know, things like this are minimum four to five years usually. Sure. Um, but because we already have the software, we are miles ahead of our competitors, and we're building the device around the software. We're not. There is innovation in the device. We're scanning with a a, a way that's never been done before. Some of the internal mechanics are going to be very different, but overall, we're going to be using a lot of off-the-shelf stuff that you know patents that have been long expired. You know, so it's. Uh, I'm hoping that it won't be expedited a little bit. Yeah, I think it'll be expedited. I, you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to say a year and a half. Amazing. Uh, to have a prototype. A prototype, and then of that. course is everything that comes out. And then after. we do preclinical right. study, uh, pre pre market studies, um, and so I'm I'm working on making those partnerships now, and for a potential pilot that could yeah. help get the data that we need for FDA approval. Really amazing. Just switching gears to kind of wrap up. Where has all this brought you in terms of your your personal life, in terms of your spiritual journey? You're oh, back sure. here. You're back here in Israel now. You know. Right. What's, all, what's going on with you in general? For sure. So, so the moment I, about five minutes before I got on stage at the WeWork Award, um, I was holding back the tears because it suddenly dawned on me, you know, all those years that like I wanted to do residency, I was home with my son, I thought like my medical career was over, what am I doing? You know, I had all this doubt. Like, why, why did you do this to me, Hashem? Why did I go to medical school? Why did I become an engineer? Like, how is all this gonna come together? And when I was getting ready to get on the stage, it all came together. Yeah. It all was like, okay, maybe this is really what you want me to do all this time. I did all this ultrasound research. It wasn't really what I wanted at the time, but like, that's what I ended up doing. And so now I have this skill set, and now you've brought it all together for me. And so I'm here. And I, I felt incredibly inspired and excited at that point and realized that I, I'm not really driving this story, that Hashem is really driving the story. And Hashem is behind He's your all. monitor. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> he is my monitor, and he, I'm just along for the ride. I'm, at this point, I'm just watching what's going on, and I'm listening, and I'm acting. And that's kind of who I am, and, and that's what I'm doing. No better place in the world to do that than the heart of Jerusalem, where <laughs> you're privileged not only to work, but to live. And um, It is a privilege every day, I give thanks. And it's been a privilege for me to be able to yeah. hear your amazing story. It's incredibly inspiring so on so many levels. Thank you. Um, That's really nice. And uh, I wish you amazing success with the device and with your entire journey moving forward. Amen, amen. Thank you so much, Yehudit Abrams. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com 
and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.